you would turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Chronicles, all the way back in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break. I'm not sure how long from the Gospel of John. We've been going through that book um, for quite a time now. And if we continue to go straight through the book, we would be in that book for probably like two years. So from time to time, it's good to take a break from the Gospel of John and see other parts of Scripture, not getting so focused just on that one little tiny snippet of Scripture. So this week, we're going to be in uh, 1 Chronicles talking about worship. We're going to be in there next week. And then after that, um, I may start a series on baptism. I'm not sure yet or not, but I know for this week and next week, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles on worship. And I want to start by asking some questions, as I typically do, to kind of get our hearts engaged and start thinking rightly about this. And ask this, does it matter how we worship God so long as our hearts are right in the matter? I want you to think about this. Let me put it another way. Can we participate in worship however we want as long as our hearts have a posture of worship that just says, yeah, I am worshiping? Is that all right? Now, there's a strong current in evangelicalism that says, no, it actually doesn't matter. They'll say things like, we rend our hearts, not our garments, they would say. And what, what happens on the outside doesn't matter so long as the inside is right. Well, you've heard this kind of thing before, right? We clean the outside of the or we clean the inside of the cup, not the outside. And they'll kind of take these scriptures and maybe just twist them a little bit. So this, they say these kind of things. But I, I want to push back on this notion of internal Christianity that says that externals don't matter, that your actions and what you do in worship doesn't matter, because they do matter. The, the notion that you can have a clean inside but a dirty outside is part of our biggest problem in worship today, especially in our land. The, the external should be an outworking of the internal. What is going on on the inside of the heart should be uh, going on on the outside as well. What comes out of the mouth is what defiles a person, is what James says. He says it that way. And if it comes out from the inside, what does that imply? Right? That it's coming from somewhere. So your outside should look like your inside. And along these same lines, Paul says to work out your salvation. Why? Because God's working in you to will and to, to do for his good pleasure. So God should be doing something on the inside, and that should be reflected on the outside. So my proposition this morning is that externals aren't disconnected to the internals. Actually, they're directly related. They are fruits of the inside. And because this is true, we find that we, we've often fooled ourselves into thinking that our hearts are right when in fact they are not. Right? When we think this way, this is our problem. If no one ever questions the outside because of, or no, if no one ever questions the inside because of the outside, then you might have a tendency to fool yourself into thinking that you're always going about the right thing. Right? We can fool ourselves. But we need people to question our actions because our actions actually do reflect something. They reflect the heart. We need people to doubt us at times because we're doing things wrong on the outside. And they might come to you and say, I see this problem. And the problem with you will be if you say, well, that doesn't reflect my inside. That might reveal that you're in denial, that you're lying to yourself and you're heading for danger. So what we're going to do today is look at a passage today that cautions Flippancy, but specifically in worship. We're going to take this principle and apply it to how we worship God. And the point of the sermon is that you walk away with reverence and awe in the presence of God. 
that you take seriously what you are doing in worship. And next week, we're going to look at a caution for the rigidity in worship. After you hear this sermon, you might think that I'm I'm just giving a a one-sided view, but I'm not. I'm going to do a two-part series. So hopefully we'll come out on the other side with a balanced view that's able to see reverence and awe on one side and order over here, but also jovial worship, happy worship. That's something that we can be excited about. So again, our text is 1 Chronicles. We're going to be in chapter 13. I'm sorry if I didn't say 1 Chronicles 13. Um, 13 verses 5 through 14. And uh, as you're turning there, just for context, this story picks up after the Israelites have recovered the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant was that symbolic um, item in Israel's worship that um, represented and symbolized the presence of God. When the ark was there, they believed that Jesus or that God was in their midst. They hadn't met Jesus yet, but they believed that God was with them when the ark was there. So you get this picture of bringing this ark back that that had been in captivity. The Philistines had stolen it and that comes back and they're so excited about it. They're all happy that the presence of God is with them. And the story today picks up in First Chronicles 13, 5 through 14. And it says this. These are the words of God. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Balah, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perbez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gideite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in the house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom in all that he had. The word of the Lord for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach uh, such a text that has a lot of emotions going on with it, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to sort those out this morning. Father, I pray that we would sense the severity of the text. Uh, But Lord, we pray also that we would see clearly what you're trying to tell us through it. That we might see Jesus clearly through this and how your heart for worship is true. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be aligned with it. So Lord, I pray that the the words that I preach this morning, that they would be your words, that if anything that I say is not of your word, that it would go in one ear and right out the other as I often pray. Lord, ready us to encounter you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't have to tell you that this story is a bit shocking. When you read this, you're like, 
what just happened? Right? A lot going on here. It catches us off guard almost as much as it probably caught them off guard. Right? We're, we're kind of taken back, but they were really, really taken back. Just imagine the scene that's going on there and all the emotions that would have been happening to the celebration, and then this happens. And when God strikes Uzzah dead, it's like a, uh, this is kind of the, the picture that I get in my mind. It's like a, a van full of a happy family heading to the beach for vacation. Everything's going good. And then suddenly a tire blows, the car rips off the road, and one of the passengers is dead. It's like, bam, it just happens. What? That came out of nowhere. And, and the shift from, from happiness and glee to gloom is almost immediate. Like you, you didn't even see it coming at all. It just hits you like a train. And what happens in uh, this story is it ruins the whole trip. Everyone's affected by it. God is angry. David's angry. The trip's canceled. The ark takes a detour to the house of Obed-Edom. And David uh, takes some time to kind of gather his wits. He's shaking in fear, and he refuses to bring this ark of the covenant into his house. He says, God, I'm not bringing this to my house. After what just happened, no way. So David kind of steps back and takes a moment. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this scene I want to, and ask him some, some questions. I want to look at David and God because it says in this text that two people are angry. David's angry and God's angry. And then I want to look at these two, kind of weigh them out together and then reflect and see who, who is justified. Which one of these people is actually the right one to be angry in the end? So let's first look at David's anger. If you look in verse 11, it makes it very clear that David is angry. It says, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. So why was he angry? Well, he was angry because God did not accept his worship, their worship. David had in his mind what was going on, and it wasn't exactly what God had in his mind. And this discrepancy is their problem. If you read in verse 8, you see something very interesting. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs, with lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Right? Do, you, do you see the picture? They're celebrating God with all their might. They're, they're going hard after God. You've probably heard someone say something like this before, haven't you? They, they just came back from a worship service and they said, I was pouring my heart out to God. I was going hard after God in worship. They might even say something close to what David is doing. With all their might, we are worshiping God. Now think about that. That's probably the way that David would have described it too, not just the person writing this. right? David would have said, we were worshiping God with all our might. But despite worshiping God with all our might, Uzzah is suddenly struck dead. right? We thought that we were in the good. We thought that we were actually kind of doing God a favor. We were worshiping God, doing what he's called us to do, worshiping him. And then the cart falls Uzzah takes out his hand, and he's dead that fast, out of nowhere. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of David for a minute, and we're going to kind of notice a common fallen condition that we all have when we put ourselves where David is. If we're honest, this makes us a little bit angry like David, doesn't it? I read this uh, just a couple weeks ago as I'm reading through my Bible, and my first instinct was actually, you know what? That kind of makes me a little bit angry too. When I read this, it's like, Really? Really? This is this is the way that you're going to, to do this? And at first glance, we probably feel it's a little bit too harsh, doesn't it? Like, Especially since they're in the middle of a religious act. They're celebrating the presence of God, returning to their people, worshiping God with all their heart, with all their might. And then this happens. 
So if you're like me, our natural inclination is to say uh, that their hearts were right in the matter. So would it really have mattered what their actions were? Does it matter that as a touch they were worshiping God with all their heart? Shouldn't God have seen past their actions to see that they were uh, their heart was worshiping with all their might? Right? That's what our natural inclination does. And this is actually our problem. This is a problem that we think of it like this. When we do this, what we're revealing is that we want God to revere and respect our actions according to our hearts that we define. Right? We want to say where my heart was. We tell God, I was worshiping with all my might. And God says, but were you? Right? So we want God to, to accept what we're doing. And we say, God, it doesn't matter what I'm doing so much because you know I was worshiping with all my heart. And this is a huge mistake because our hearts are often deceptive, aren't they? We've talked about this before, and I don't want to give a one-sided picture that our hearts are just awful and you can't ever trust them because there's such thing as a a spirit-led heart that you can trust. But there are many times in our life when we're listening to the flesh part of our heart that says, no, I am right. I'm justified in what I'm doing. And we can start to point fingers and get self-righteous and even sometimes point fingers at God and say, who are you to question what I'm doing? And we don't realize what we're doing when we do it. Because that's what pride does. It kind of blinds us, doesn't it? We get all caught up in the moment. We're angry. We're mad. And we're not thinking straight. And we do things like this. It's a little bit scary, honestly, if you think about it. So the lie that you and I tell ourselves is that God will value our worship no matter what we're doing because we feel our hearts are in the right place. That's the lie that we believe that we tell ourselves. And it isn't just um, David that has this problem. It's, it's a human problem. That's why I said that it's kind of a common uh, uh, problem for humanity. And you see this all through Scripture, right? I'm not just making this up. Think about Saul's kingship. Saul's kingship was stripped from him because of disobedience and worship, right? He did a wrong act in worship. He got a little bit ahead of himself, and his whole kingship was taken away because of a wrong act in worship. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the priests, they decided to offer what was called unauthorized fire. That's what the ESV says. Many of you read the King James. That's called strange fire in the King James. They decided to take worship and shift it a little bit. Right? They wanted to change it a little bit. And what happened? God struck them dead. He killed them. He killed the sons of Aaron, the priests who were supposed to be interceding for the people. Ananias and Sapphira. Think about their situation. They sold a field and gave the, the picture, the image that they were giving all the proceeds to the church, but they held back some. What did God do? He struck them dead because they weren't honest about their tithes and their offerings. Another act of worship. Paul tells us some have gotten sick and died because they don't take seriously the Lord's Supper. They're taking it flippantly. This is a common problem. It's, it's not just a couple places in Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture, and it's all throughout history. It is a human problem. And what these examples show us is, is that our hearts are often not where we think they are in worship. We're often deceived. It's easy to say our heart is good. I'm here. I'm being worshipful. I'm worshiping with all, our, our, all my might, as David would say. But Jesus says, out of the mouth, or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Or we might say it another way, uh, uh, um, out of the abundance of the heart, we worship. Right? We act. We, we, our bodies do things, and that's a reflection of the inside. So David is apparently angry because he and God were not on the same page. His thoughts were things are going well. right? We're worshiping. We're having a good time. We're singing. We're praising. But clearly they were not going as well as he thought they were. David needed to step back and reevaluate what he was doing. And this is what I want us to do a little bit in uh, this service today. I'm not calling out anything that we've done in this church specifically, but I just want this to be a, a gut check for us. 
Where we can think that we're going through everything fine, but we're actually not on the same page with God. So I want to step back like David did and reevaluate where we are with God this morning. So let's now shift over to God. Why was God angry? We've seen why David was angry. What about God? Why was he angry? Well, we do in fact know that the death of Uzzah wasn't just a coincidence. Because some people, when they read the scriptures, they say, well, there's no real correlation there. He just happened to die, and they thought it was God. No, the text clearly says in verse 10 that God was angered and broke out against Uzzah. God did this. He didn't just randomly die. It's directly correlated, right? So God did this. Verse 10 also tells us why he was angered. It says, because he touched the ark. I think about that. Why is God angry, so angry that he could kill a man? Because he touched an ark. Do you feel that? There's a little bit of like you read it and you're like, ah. honestly, our, our, our instinct, our, our gut is to say, that's it? Over something so small as that, God would kill a man? That man was not only worshiping and celebrating the presence of God, he was even trying to help as the ark slipped. He's trying to help God out. Now, If this is all there was to the story, I believe that we actually would have genuine God problems. But God has reasons, right? God has reasons for the things that he does. God was angry, but his anger anger wasn't arbitrary. He had clear reasons, and David eventually sees this. And I want you to see this too. If you would turn forward to chapter 15. Chapter 15, 1 Chronicles 15. We're going to read a couple verses here. I'm going to jump around a little bit uh, just for the sake of time. 1 Chronicles 15, 1 through 3 says this, and then we'll jump down to 13. It says, David built houses for himself in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites might carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Now, I want you to jump forward to verse 13 because he names off basically all the people that are involved in this. And that's not so much important for us today. Verse 13 says this, because you did not, he's talking to the Levites because he just said only the Levites are going to be carrying this. He says, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord and the, uh, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. I want you to think about this. At this point, David has had some time to think. Time's passed, and he's reflected on this event a little bit. The, how, or the, the ark of the covenant has been in the house of Obed-Edom. And uh, David went ahead to the city of David, and now he's reflecting on this, and he's preparing. He gears up once again to move the ark, but this time he's a lot more thoughtful, isn't he? He's thinking about what he's doing before he does it. This whole process is planned. Rather than letting emotions lead worship, they realize that they should move the ark according to the rule, it says in verse 13. According to the word of God, it says again. So on the one hand, this clears up the issue a little bit better because we can see what the issue was. God was angry because the Israelites carried the Ark of the Covenant like the pagans did on oxen. 
But in the law, it was prescribed for the Levites, the ordained ministers, to carry the ark by the poles built for it. It had rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant, and then they would slide these poles in and carry it by the poles, the Levites would. So Uzzah, on the other hand, though, he was an unordained man. He wasn't a Levite. He was not qualified nor called to do what he was doing. We think about ordination, and sometimes we can get a little bit flippant about God calling ordained ministers. They're specifically called to do this, right? The, all these things in the church that we sometimes think, well, that's just old tradition. Well, actually, the, there's scriptural reason for it, and we can get a little bit flippant with it. So I want you to see this here. So not only was he not qualified nor called to do what he was doing, uh, and, and yet David allowed this man to wrongfully carry the ark. David was the man that should have stopped this. He was the king, but he didn't. And when he took the liberty of saving the ark from desecration by falling on the ground, God showed everyone which was the bigger desecration. Right? The man's sinful hands were much worse to touch the ground than um, anything else, really. I mean, what worse could touch that ark than a sinful man's hands? God made the dirt. Would it really be that big of a deal if God's ark touched the dirt over an unordained man in the wrong place at the wrong time? With sinful hands. And that's why God struck him dead. Because he had no business touching the ark that God specifically even said, if any man touches this, he will die. Even the Levites weren't supposed to touch it. So, of course, this unordained man in that place would be killed. Right? So when he touched this, it shouldn't have been a shock to anyone. And yet David's still kind of angry about it because he wanted God to overlook all that. He wanted God to just, don't worry about my disobedience. We were worshiping. That's what he wants God to think. So that's what happened. That's the technical reason why God did it. But on the other hand, this shows us a bigger picture, doesn't it? So we know what happened, but what does it mean? Right? We're, we're way forward in time. right? We're in a little bit different context. So what does this teach us about God today? How can we bring this to 2022 Village Church here and now? And what I want you to see this morning, church, is that God cares about how we conduct our worship. He still cares because God doesn't change. He's the same God. In verse 13, I want you to see something. Verse 13 is really the whole point of this sermon. David says this, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Catch this. Why? Because we did not seek him according to the rule. According to the rule. There's standards. We didn't worship according to the rule. Worship should be according to the rule, to the word of God, not our whims. We don't worship however we decide to worship. We worship the way that God tells us to worship. And here we see David's second chance at worship. He failed the first time. We can get a little bit of a better picture by looking at the what he does the second time. So this time, he takes time to plan his worship, doesn't he? They don't just rush into it. He takes time. Verse 1, 3, and 12 in chapter 15 all specifically say he prepared. He prepared. What does that tell us about us? Maybe we should prepare when it comes to worship. Get ready to encounter the living God. Realize what we're about to do when we walk in here. It's well thought out. It's not spontaneous. We don't just come on a whim. We think about what we're doing when we approach a holy God. Verse 13 again says it's according to the rule, the word of God. So you see also his posture. Look at the posture that David has. It's adjusted in humility and reverence. He's essentially saying the Lord broke out against us because we were wrong. That's humility. He's saying we didn't get it right the first time. We didn't know what we were doing. We thought we did. We thought we were worshiping with all our might. But God clearly showed us that we weren't in the right. 
There's humility as he approaches God the second time. Then here's the, the, the severity, the reverence. He says, no one may carry this but the Levites. Right? Okay, guys, this time we're going to get it right. We're going to do this the way that God told us to do it. And he told us to have the Levites only do this. So no one's going to touch that thing this time we worship unless they're called to do it. This is God's seriousness about worship. Worship is a serious matter, church. It still is today. So David's second chance at worship gives us a much better model for how we should conduct our worship even today, the now. We do it as our call to worship today calls for. Do you remember what it said in Hebrews? In reverence and awe. That's New Testament. In reverence and awe. So let's reflect for a moment. We've seen David's anger. We've seen God's anger. We've kind of weighed those two out. And we can all clearly say whose anger was justified, right? It's, it's God's. God's anger is justified. But let's think about David's anger a little bit. What was David's anger actually surfacing? It was pride. David was angry because he was prideful. This is pride in disguise. By chapter 15, David's cooled down a little bit. He's evaluated his heart and is no longer angry at God. In fact, he's humbled and he admits his own fault. He says, we did it wrong the first time, guys. We got ahead of ourselves. We thought we were all happy and having a good time, but God clearly showed us where we really were. We did not seek him according to the rule. Could be said another way. We sought him according to our own ways. Right? We leaned on our own understanding. We thought that we could worship God however we wanted, not the way that God called us to worship him. And as David reflects on what happens, he realizes that he was out of order, not God. He's humiliated and realizes his anger was not justified. God's anger was justified and his was not. Now, through this story, we realize true reverence is according to the revered one's rules. Now, that, when I say that, it might be obvious, but we often don't really think of it that way. True reverence is according to the revered one's rules. It's a prideful act to assume that we can approach God, a holy God, according to our vain imaginations. We don't do this with anything else. Think about your job. When you go to your job, your manager has a way of doing things. He says, do it this way. And the way that you respect your manager is to do it that way. And a bad employee is the one that goes in there and says, actually, I, I've done this before. I'm pretty experienced. I know how to do it. Um, I'm going to do it this way. That's a good way to not respect your manager. Now, a few people actually do that, right? Most of you in this room, you recognize the severity. When you walk into a job, you will lose that job if you try to go in there and do it your own way. Why do we think it's any different when we approach the living God in his house? When he says, do it this way, and we come in and we say, let's have a good old time, guys, and just do it whatever, whatever way we feel like. I'm feeling this way, so I'm going to worship God like this. Why would we do it like that? It doesn't make any sense. Pride says, I will worship God how I want. Reverence says, I will worship God how he wants. Right? We worship God how he wants. And this is why in the Reformed tradition, the tradition that this church actually comes from, Presbyterians stem from a tradition that held something called the regulative principle of worship. I don't know if any of you have ever heard this before. You don't even have to write it down or remember it, but it's a very good principle to remember if you think about it. The regulative principle of worship at its basic conception says when it comes to worship, Scripture guides what we do. Now that might seem very simple, and you might say, well, don't all churches do that? They might say they do. They might say we're worshiping with all our might, but they don't take seriously the explicit things that God says about worship. 
to do it this way or that way. They kind of get a little bit loose and they say, well, that was back then. That's just uh, that's just culture. That's just tradition. That's the way they did it back then. But there's many, many places in Scripture. If you look at it closely, Paul will say things like, I, I um, commend you because you maintain the traditions even as I handed them to you. Right. In other words, this isn't cultural. What we're doing here is one way, all the way, all throughout Christian history. We're going to worship like this. This is how Christians worship. So consider how David broke the regular principle of worship. Principle of worship. He allowed culture to shape the practice of worship, didn't he? Right. It says that they carried the ark by oxen, despite being told to carry it by the hands of the Levites. Where do you think they got this idea to carry it by oxen? Do you remember the way that the ark came back after it was in captivity to the Philistines? What did the Philistines put the ark on? When they, do you remember the story where they had the ark? It wasn't going well. God cursed them, essentially. They brought it into their camp. They, the people are getting ill, and they say, we've got to get rid of this thing. So they send it out on cows. And whichever way they went, the Lord, they said the Lord will take it to where it needs to go. So here comes this ark back to Israel, and they get this bright idea. Hmm, you can put it on cows. You can put it on oxen. You can put this on an animal. God said to carry it by these poles. Yeah, it has these loops in the side of it where you put the holes in and you carry it. But, I mean, wouldn't it be a lot better if an animal carried this instead of the Levites? It's a lot easier, right? I mean, we want it to be as easy as we can to worship, right? That's the thinking that they got into. This was a clear breach of the regulative principle. They were trying to worship God by the way that the pagans worshiped their God. They were learning from the world. Now, I want us to think about our worship. Bring this up to date. Consider what ways the modern church has allowed the culture to shape its worship. What ways have we started to look more like the world rather than the word, right? Our culture values things like consumerism. We value entertainment. We value novelty. We want new stuff. We want our stuff to be changing and new all the time. And our churches have fed this by welcoming all sorts of pagan worship. And we wouldn't call it pagan worship because our, our culture now is a pluralistic, uh, non-deified uh, culture. We don't say we believe in God anymore. But there's many ways that it's still pagan, right? It's still not of God. The sanctuaries of consumerism are shopping malls. Think about that. Look at the churches. Look at the way some of these churches are going these days. They start to look more like the world. The sanctuary of entertainment is the theater, right, where all of the people sit out there, the lights go dim, and then everything is enacted out on the stage, right? The people used to call this an altar. It's a stage now, right? And you guys are passive where all the real people are up here doing all the business. Is that the way that worship should look like? Are you participating or are you just sitting out there in the dark, Right? There's lots of ways that we've actually fallen prey to the world. The sermon of novelty looks like a TED Talk. Now, some of you may or may not know what a TED Talk is, but basically it is a place where people have new bright ideas and they get on a stage. Everyone looks at them and they say, here, I have a bright idea. No one's ever heard of this before. Bam, there it is. And everyone goes, oh, wow, that was awesome. And they keep getting bigger and bigger. And isn't that the sermon today where someone has a bright new idea or, oh, I've never heard of that before. I'm going to go listen to that guy. That guy knows what he's talking about because he says something that I've never heard before. Novelty. Give me something new to hear. Now, it's easy to point fingers at other churches because we're pretty traditional around here, right? But there's ways that we've actually fallen into this as well. Remember that this was not just an external issue. It's an internal issue. So you can actually go through all the motions, right, like David thought he was doing. They can go through it, but their hearts are in the wrong place. They think that they're worshiping right, but they have a heart issue. And David, his heart issue was that he was flippantly engaging in worship uh, without putting in the due preparation. He's going through the motions, but he's not prepared mentally. He's not prepared in his heart. 
Now think about this, church. What ways have you failed to prepare for worship like David? As you come to church on the Lord's Day, what ways have you failed to prepare? Do you spend as much time preparing for worship as you do preparing your shopping list to the mall? Right? That, that kind of sanctuary of the world, that, that symbol of uh, consumerism, we get real ready to go there. We, we plan out all our clothes, what all we're going to buy. We get all the things we're going to eat, and we think, oh, this is going to be glorious. We get real excited about it. Do you do that about church? Do you get excited about worshiping God, encountering who he is? Because we should. We really should. We'll see next week. David actually gets very excited about it. Once he steps back, his, his posture actually isn't rigid. I want you to get that from this sermon too. I'm not trying to give you an overly one-sided view of rigidity. David's really excited about worship even after this event happens. Think about the ways that you can prepare your heart for worship. The fact of the matter, church, is that nothing is neutral. All your actions have meaning. Either the world is shaping us or we are shaping the world. And this certainly applies to worship, doesn't it? There's nothing neutral. Everything that you do is going one way or the other. The less we intentionally prepare for worship, the more the world by default is preparing us. Unless you're preparing for worship, the world is preparing you for whatever it wants you to do. We are groomed all the time. Every time you drive down the road, you can't even go down the road without being indoctrinated, catechized by the signs that are there. Little dings on your phone. You can't even get away from the advertisements on your phone. They will find you. They will indoctrinate you. They will tell you how to worship them. And you know what? If you don't fight that, you're probably going to fall prey to it. You're probably going to end up actually going through the liturgy of the world. It's something that we must resist. So in order for us to properly engage culture, bring about transformation, and most importantly, reverence our God, we must shape worship according to the rule, according to the word of God. If we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, we cannot expect to do that when our worship is shaped by the world. We have to look there and move out from there. So as we close, I want to answer uh, what some of you may be thinking. You might be thinking, okay, um, yes, that's the Old Testament though, right? This is an Old Testament worship. We are in the New Testament. Now Jesus has come and we worship differently, right? We can just kind of do what we want because Jesus has come. Yes, this is true. Jesus has come. And there are differences in the way that we worship. But the, the difference isn't a decrease in severity. It's actually an increase in severity, isn't it? Rather than approaching the types and shadows... We're now approaching the true substance, which is Christ. That's what Hebrews says. We worship not in flippancy and triviality. We worship in fear and trembling, Paul says. New Testament. Paul says we worship in fear and trembling. Hebrews says the new, uh, in Hebrews, the new Testament sermon on worship. If you read that start to finish, it's a, it's a book on worship. I highly recommend it. Uh, Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Fearful thing. A reverent thing. We need to take worship seriously. So even new covenant worship carries with it blessings and cursings. Right? You think about some of the warnings you see in Hebrews. Trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. That blood is Jesus' blood. That's New Testament. The new covenant in Christ's blood must be, must be approached in reverence and awe, just like the Old Testament. You have that same posture of worship when you come to God today because you're worshiping the same God. The God that doesn't change. If you partake of the sacraments unworthily, Paul says some could get sick and die. That's the Lord's Supper, right? This is post-Jesus. This is post-church. This is normal, ordinary worship. Paul says some of you could get sick and die if you don't take this seriously. 
If you just put it as a tray in the back where you say, grab some on your way out, there's the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood. Think, think about that. But, but there are people that do that. We need to take seriously God's word and what he says. Just recently, there's been a movement in the church to, to start tinkering with baptisms. Now, they won't call it baptisms, but that's what they're doing. They say, come and meet Jesus in the water. This has been local. I'm not going to name any names, but they, they say... When you come down to the water, and it looks like they do it in baptismal fonts, but it's not a baptism, they'll say. They'll come down and say, what do you want from Jesus today? What do you want to get? And then they'll dunk a person, and they'll come up and they'll say, God will give it to you kind of thing. Now, is it surprising that I tell you that a woman did this recently? Some of you might even know this person. And when she went down to that water, she had a stroke. You're not going to hear about that because that's not good advertisement to where that happened. But that happened I know the lady. It's a true story. You need to be careful when it comes to worship in the ways that we tinker with the sacraments. Reverence and all. According to the word. Worship isn't something to play with. We need to wake up, church. There are ways that we've abused God's worship that should be an exciting thing. It really should. But we need to take it seriously the way that God calls us to. So I ask again, does external worship matter? Absolutely. It absolutely does matter. Would God really cause a person to die because they flippantly partook of the Lord's Supper? He says he would. Think about that. Would God strike a church member dead because they didn't honestly give of their tithe and offering? As we're getting ready to do in a minute. Something we still do in the church. Would God kill someone because they didn't do that? He did it twice in Acts. Right? That's the story of the church. Post-Christ. New Testament. Does God not now allow us, or does God now allow us to worship according to our desires, or does He still want us to worship according to the Word of God? I think you know the answer to those questions. He hasn't changed. He's the same God yesterday, today, and guess what? Tomorrow too. We keep on worshiping the way that God has told us to in His Word. Now, if this seems like a very unbalanced, rigid view, remember this is part one of a two-part uh, sermon series on worship. I'm going to give the other side, and there's there's two sides of this coin. There really is. There's reverence and obedience on one side, and the other side is actually freedom and joy. It might, might sound surprising to you after hearing that, but there's two sides of this same coin. Next week, we're going to look at that. But until then, I really do think it would be wise to, uh, to contemplate and kind of sit on this side of the coin. With all the abuses that we see in the church today as we look around, I think it's actually a little bit uh, comfortable, a good place for us to be in to say, this is a little bit scary. We need to take seriously the word of God where we approach it in reverence and awe. And I want you to sit there until next week. And next week I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a, uh, alleviation from this. We're going to see David dances. I, just going to give you a heads up for where we're going. But, but just think about this. This is where we're going. So, so take heart. It, it's not all rigidity and stiffness. I know we can kind of uh, fall into fall prey of that as Presbyterians. But there's two sides to this point. <laughs> we, we look forward to next week and what we will see David do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us by giving us your word. We often don't think of it like that, but you've given us guardrails. You've given us rules that actually are are for our benefit. They, they help us. They show us who you are primarily, but they also show us who we are and how we fall short of that. So, Lord, I pray that you would impress on each and every individual member of this church, this um, congregation here that you would show them that you take seriously the way that you call us to approach you 
I pray that you would work on our hearts to help us to prepare to do that, to prepare to encounter the living God. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, that you would give us an overflowing of joy and glee and excitement uh, to see what you're doing in our own hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please stand with me as we respond to God's word this morning by singing Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey. What a fitting hymn it is. Again, I don't always pick these. Most of the time, Miss Jackie does, and she did not know exactly what we were talking about this week. So thank you again for picking another hymn that fits so well with what we are listening to.